Thank you for being in worship with us today. And if you are in our overflow room or watching us online, thank you for joining us as well. So I think all of us in this room have uh, been victims of high inflation that has happened over the past couple of years. I have both told and heard more stories that begin with the sentence, you won't believe what I paid for a tank of gas the other day. Uh, Inflation seems to be all around us. However, even before the inflation of the last couple of years, there have been times in my life, and I bet in yours as well, where you have paid for something and you realize that you paid far more than that item or that commodity was actually worth. In fact, here are just a few examples where you perhaps paid more than something was worth. Uh, The first one was a tech stock in 1999. If you were around back then, you remember the tech bubble of the late 90s where everyone was buying stocks that had anything to do with internet or anything to do with computers and all of those stocks went up and up and up and it became known as the dot-com bubble and the dot-com bubble in March of 2000 burst and all those stocks went down. So if you bought a tech stock in 1999, you paid far more than that stock was later worth. Similar to that was the housing bubble of the mid-2000s. And so if you bought a house in 2007, like I did, you saw the price of that house decline in 2008, 2009, 2010. Uh, Lumber at a gas station, or probably more accurately, firewood at a gas station. Have you ever gone into a convenience store and you've seen a bag with a few sticks of firewood in there? And a price tag of $7 or $6 or $10. I had a friend who said his dad went into a gas station to get a Coke or a snack or something like that. He had never seen that before. His dad happened to live in South Georgia. Had about 500 acres in South Georgia. And he walked into the gas station. He walks past this display of bags of firewood and plastic bags. Looks at the price on them. Goes to the counter, he pays for his Coke, he pays for his snack, he goes out to the car, gets in the car, looks over his wife, and and he says, Martha, turns out we're millionaires. (laughs) Firewood at a gas station, overpaying for that. Popcorn and Coke at a movie theater. I really don't have to explain that. You've all had that experience where you go in and you pay more for a drink and a snack than you did for the ticket to get in and see the movie. And the last one, bottled water at a Braves game. I think the last time I went to a Braves game and got a bottle of water, I paid $5, meaning I paid five cents for the water and the plastic that water went in. I paid $4.95 for the convenience of drinking water while I watched the Braves. We've all had the experience of paying for something and paying far more than that item or that commodity was actually worth. Here's why I bring all of this up. There is this truth that runs throughout the Bible, and a truth that that if you live long enough, you will learn this truth even if you never read your Bible. The truth is this. The price we pay for sin is always greater than the pleasure of the sin itself. The cost of sin is always more than what that sin is actually worth. Which is exactly what we'll see today as we continue our series called Sins and Stones on the Life of King David. If you grew up in church, you've heard of King David, the second king over Israel, the most famous king over Israel. Even if you did not grow up in church, you've likely heard the story of David battling Goliath. 
where young teenager David defeats the giant Goliath because of his trust in God. And if you've been here with us for this series, you know that David was not just a king and a warrior, but David as well was a man after God's own heart. David pursued the Lord, and David pursued righteousness in his life. Except, last week, if you were here, we saw David pursuing something that was very unrighteous in his life. One evening, David went up to his roof, which was like this outdoor patio area, and from his roof, he was able to look down into a courtyard, and there in the courtyard, he saw this beautiful woman bathing. His passions overcame him. He asked about this woman. He found out she was married. He said, I don't care. Have her come to me. He spent the night with this woman. She became pregnant, and so then to cover up that sin, he had her husband killed. And that passage that we read where David thought he had fooled everyone, where he thought he had covered his sin, the passage we read last week ended with the phrase, but this thing David had done displeased the Lord. So in the next chapter, God sends a prophet named Nathan to confront David. And he says, look what you've done. The Lord knows what you've done. You've committed adultery to cover that up. You've committed murder. Look at this thing that you have done. And when Nathan confronted David, it's like this light bulb went off. And he realized just how sinful he had been. He realized just how awful his actions had been. And he repented. He confessed his sin. He admitted his sin to David. He confessed it to the Lord. And then this was David's response. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12. And this is how... Nathan the prophet responded to David, speaking for the Lord. Here's what he said, beginning in verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Now there are a couple of things we see in this response of Nathan to David's sin that are very important. And the first one is highlighted here. Nathan said, I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Or we would say, The Lord has forgiven your sin. Now remember, these were big sins. This was more than tearing the tag off of a mattress or driving five miles per hour over the speed limit. David committed adultery, and then to cover that sin, he committed murder. Big time sins. And yet, here's what we read. David confessed that sin to the Lord, and David was forgiven. This is a truth that we see throughout Scripture. No one, no one, no one is ever beyond the grace of God. 
No sin is ever beyond the grace of God. And my guess is there may be someone in here today or several someones in here today and right now you are struggling with whether or not God can forgive you for your sin. That that is... uh, consumed your heart and consumed your mind and right now you just do not believe that God can forgive you that it's been so bad that it's been so awful that it's gone on for so long that you are beyond the forgiveness of God and when you say that here's what you're saying you're saying that your sin is more powerful than the power of the cross of Jesus Christ you are saying that you are more powerful than God's grace through the cross And here's what you need to understand. When you confess that sin to the Lord, God promises that he will forgive you completely, that he will take that sin away. So here's what I want to do. I want to stop, pause right here, and I want to pray for you. I want to pray that this this truth that we see here in this passage and throughout Scripture would land in your heart and mind. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone right now who is struggling with accepting your forgiveness. That right now, this would not be a truth that they just know, but one that they would feel deep within them. That they would feel your grace. That they would feel your forgiveness. And that they would know without a doubt that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that they are forgiven. And Father, this is the hope for all of us. We are all just sinners saved by grace at best. None of us come bringing anything that is good. None of us bring a righteousness that is our own. It is only through Christ. So I pray if someone's struggling today with accepting that gift of grace, that today they would leave freed from that sin and forever changed because of your grace and forgiveness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, The first thing is that God completely forgave David for uh, his sin. The other thing that we see, by the way, as an aside from that, is that God was gracious to David. David thought that he would die immediately. I mean, when he woke up from his sin stupor and realized just how awful he had been, he thought the Lord was going to kill him on the spot. And Nathan the prophet says, no, the Lord's not going to take your life. You will live. God was incredibly gracious to David because David repented. He did not feel the full weight of the consequences that he could have felt. However, there were still consequences. And Nathan in this passage gives three that were directly related to David's sin. The first is this. David had a son who would die. Here's what Nathan said. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord... The son born to you will die. This was the son that was a product of the affair that David had with Bathsheba. That son was born and Nathan said that son will die. We read about this in the verses following this um, conversation between Nathan and David. Here's what we read. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. So this child was born to Bathsheba and David pleaded for the child. The child was sick. He fasted before the Lord 
He slept in sackcloth on the ground. Sackcloth was made from goat's hair. It was very itchy. People in mourning would wear sackcloth as a sign of their mourning. Someone who was sorrowful over their sin, they would wear sackcloth as a sign of their sorrow. Someone who was trying to sleep in sackcloth would not get much sleep. And so they would be awakened throughout the night, itching from the sackcloth, reminding that person to pray. David did all of that. He pleaded and he pleaded and he pleaded before the Lord, but the child died. That was consequence number one of his sin. The second consequence was that his other son became his enemy. Here's what Nathan said would happen. He said, before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. So just a couple of chapters later, we read about this. Another son of David named Absalom decides to rebel against his father, the king. He decides, I'm not going to wait on dad to die. I want to become king now. I want to take the throne now. And so Absalom creates this conspiracy against his dad. He secretly turns the hearts of the people of Israel against David. He secretly begins to put together some armed men. And one day he and these armed men attack the castle. And they basically run David and run David's men, those who are guarding David in the castle, run them out of the castle, and then Absalom and his men take over the castle. And once Absalom, the son of David, is set up in the castle, he turns to another man named Ahithophel, and he says, what should I do next? Here's what Ahithophel says. Ahithophel answered, sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. So when David and his men escaped from Jerusalem, David left his concubines there for some reason. We do not know exactly why David did that. What we do know is this fulfilled the prophecy of Nathan. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father. And the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and he, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. So David had this affair in secret. He did this thing in private. He thought no one knew about it, but the consequences were very public. So his own son sleeps with his concubines there on the roof for all of Israel to see. So consequence number one, son dies. Consequence number two, he has this issue with his other son. The other son becomes his enemy. And then consequence number three is that other sons die as well. Here's what Nathan said. Now, therefore, the, son, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. In other words, you have chosen to live by the sword. You have chosen to live by violence. Therefore, since you murdered Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, since you chose violence, violence will never depart from your house. In other words, there is going to be lots of bloodshed in your household. Again, you read about this in the chapters that follow. 
uh, one of David's sons, a, a man named Amnon, raped one of David's daughters, a girl named Tamar. They were half-brother and sister. The full brother of Tamar, Absalom, who we just talked about, hears about this. He kills his half-brother Amnon. And then because he's killed Amnon and he's scared that David will be upset with him, he flees. David gets word to Absalom, hey, just come back. I'll forgive you. I don't want any more bloodshed. I'm, I'm the one that's caused this. Come back and I will forgive you. So Absalom does. They reconcile. And then Absalom decides, I'm going to rebel against you. Uh, David, I'm going to rebel against my father. And we just talked about that. He takes over the castle. David and his men are on the run. They have to gather their troops. And then the troops of David and the troops of Absalom go into battle against one another. David had a commander named Joab. We read about Joab last week. Joab was fiercely loyal to David. David sent a note to Joab that said, kill Uriah, and Joab did it without questioning David. He was that loyal to David. So David's troops are going against Absalom's troops, and David says, says to his men, hey, listen, I need you to go fight. I need you to win the battle, but I need to be very clear. Do not lay a finger on Absalom. I want my son to live. I want to reconcile with my son. I know he has rebelled against me, but do not kill Absalom. And everyone was willing to obey that, except for Joab, who was so loyal to David that he hated Absalom for rebelling against David. Here's what we read. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. So Absalom um, was, was this very handsome individual, had long sort of flowing hair, and he's riding a mule, and his hair gets caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Thought you might want to know that, Joab. And Joab said to the man who had told him this, what? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to, have, then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, even if a, if a thousand shekels were weighed out in my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. In other words, now you're telling me I should have killed him. But if I had killed him and got in trouble with the king, you would have said, I don't even know that guy. Here's Joab's response. Joab said, I'm not going to wait on you. I'm not going to wait for you to do this. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. So Joab took three javelins, put them into the heart of Absalom, and just in case three javelins in the heart wasn't enough to kill Absalom, the armor bearers also thrust their sword into him to make sure that he was dead. So David's son, Amnon, is killed. David's second son, Absalom, is killed. 
David chose to live by the sword and just as Nathan the prophet predicted, the sword did not depart his house. Violence consumed his house. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving back from the beach by myself and um, that is not an often occurrence for me to be in the car by myself, especially driving a long ways by myself. So driving in the car by myself meant that I got to listen to the music that I wanted to listen to. I got to choose the radio station. So for at least an hour, an hour and a half, it was 80s and 90s music with no one complaining about the music that I chose to listen to. It was glorious. It was a wonderful time. Um, after about an hour of you know, Tom Petty and maybe or maybe not Bon Jovi and several other bands like that, I turned the station to a Christian station and I caught the last half of a sermon by David Jeremiah. If you're familiar with David Jeremiah, he's a pastor at Shadow Mountain Community Church in California. And this particular sermon was on the Ten Commandments. I think I got commandments six through ten. He was walking through explaining the significance of all of the commandments, and then he got to the end, and he said this. He made this comment. He said there are two types of laws in life. The first law is what he called the law of the stop sign. The law of the stop sign is a man-made law, and the law of the stop sign can be changed at any point by a community or by a state or by a nation we could collectively, as a group, decide that we don't like the penalty that is imposed for running a stop sign. And we could petition our legislators and say, hey, we don't think that penalty is right. In fact, we don't even think it should be a, uh, against the law to run a stop sign. And the legislators could consider that and they could change that law at any point. They could say, you know, you're right. It's no longer illegal to run a stop sign. Or they could say, you know, it's, it's illegal to run a stop sign, but we think the penalty is too stiff. From now on, if you run a stop sign, the penalty is, 10, is a $10 fine. Or they could say, we think, it's too, uh, we think it's not stiff enough. From now on, if you run a stop sign, it's a year in jail. Or it's 10 years in jail. Or it's a lifetime in jail. We could change the law at any point and the penalty for that law at any point. It could be amended. It could be changed. The penalty could be made greater, it could be lessened, any, uh, any of the laws that fit under the category of the law of the stop sign can be changed by us. Then he said there's a second kind of law, and the second kind of law he called the law of the fire. And all of us could get together and we could say we don't like the law of the fire. We think the penalty for sticking your hand in the fire is too much. Someone getting burned, that's not, that's not right. We think that penalty is way too great for the, for the breaking the law of the fire and sticking your hand in the fire. And so we could petition our legislators, we could write to Congress, we could go to our councilmen, and we could say, we want to change that penalty. We think if you stick your hand in the fire, it should just be a little sting. And, and that's it. And people getting burned, we don't agree with that. We want you to change that law. And the legislators and the congressmen and the council people would say, sorry, we don't control that law. That law is a law where the penalty is set and there is nothing we can do about it. And David Jeremiah went on to say that the laws of God are like the law 
of the fire. And we can say we don't like it. We can say we don't think it's fair. We can say we don't believe in it. But the consequences of sticking your hand in the fire still mean that you'll get burned. And in fact, it's been said that we don't ever break God's law. Rather, we break ourselves on God's law. And every law that God gives in the Bible is to protect us from the consequences of the fire. God loves you and God loves me so much that he says, don't do this because I don't want you to get burned. I want to protect you from the consequences of the fire of getting burned. Many of you know this, I've told this before, that I take my kids to school virtually every morning uh, during the school year. And I try to tell them several things, uh, several truths. Uh, one is, is that the music they want to listen to is not the best music that has ever been made. And if they will let me control the station, I can help them understand what is good quality music. They do not believe me. That truth has not landed in their hearts and minds yet. Um, there are other truths I try to share with them. And virtually every morning, here is one that I share with my kids. And it is this. The decisions you make today determine the life you live tomorrow. The decisions you make today determine the life you live tomorrow. And then I follow with as they're getting out of the car. So please make good decisions today because that will determine the life you live tomorrow. 3,000 years ago, there was a day that David walked on the roof of his palace and he looked and he saw this beautiful woman bathing and he made the decision to spend the night with her. The decision he made that day determined the life he lived in the tomorrows that followed. Determined the consequences that he would experience. There was a day that he learned that this woman that he slept with had become pregnant and that her husband would find out and he needed to cover that sin and so he had her husband murdered. The decision he made that day then affected the tomorrows that would come. And because he chose to live by the sword, the sword would not depart from his house. Bloodshed would not leave his house. The cost of sin is always, always greater. Is always, always greater than what we than the than actually the sin is itself. In other words, the price that we pay for that sin is always, always greater than the pleasure that we get from that sin. So here's two questions that I want you to ask. Two questions I want you to ask when you're faced with some temptation. This is on your message map. Very quickly. Questions to ask. Number one, what will my sin cost me? Just ask the question, hey, this is appealing, this is great. This looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. I really want this thing. Here's a question to ask. What will my sin cost me? For David, he got a night of passion. What did it cost him? For a while, it cost him his kingdom. He was run out of the castle. Cost him the life of a son. Cost him his reputation. Cost him the lives of two other sons. Cost, cost him peace cost him for a period of time his relationship with God 
Throughout scripture, we see this truth over and over and over. It's not worth it. The cost is always greater than the sin. Here's what we see. David got a night of passion, but he lost three sons. So what he gained was not near what he lost. You see this in other places in the Bible. Adam and Eve got a delicious piece of fruit, but they lost paradise. So they gained for a moment this nice piece of fruit, but they lost forever paradise. We see other instances. Esau got a bowl of stew. For a moment, he got his belly filled, but he lost his birthright. Solomon got 700 wives, but he lost his joy. And when you look at the end of Solomon's life, he ends in a state of depression. Judas got 30 pieces of silver, but he lost his soul. It's not about what you get, but it's about what you lose. And always think about what you're going to lose. A businessman cheats his customer so he can gain a few more dollars. And yet he loses his reputation and he loses his clients when it's discovered. Uh, A teenager gains a euphoric feeling from taking the drugs, but they lose the trust of their parents. A girl gets her way by lying, but she loses a week's worth of sleep trying to think about how to cover up that lie. A man gains a night of passion, but he loses his marriage and he loses his family. I mean, we see this all the time. In fact, there's this, there's this question that Jesus asked that is so probing. This, this question that just drives right to the heart of who we are in this whole question. Here's what Jesus asked. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Here Jesus talks about that whole tension. Here's what I gain but here's what I lose. And he does it in terms of salvation. So what good is it? What does it profit a man to gain everything in life, but to lose his soul? So for 60 or 70 or 80 years, you gain comfort and you gain wealth and you gain pleasure. You gain all of these things. So you get that, but for the next 10 billion years, you've lost your soul. Which of those is greater? The first question to ask is, what will this sin cost me? And then here's the second question. The second question is, what will my sin cost others? And here's why I put this one in, because I, I, I understand this is how I have felt many times in my life. I see something, there's something I want, my passions are aroused, I just want that thing. And I will say, you know what, I want it, I want to have it now, and I don't care what it will cost me. I don't care. I I want that thing and I want what I want and I'll deal with the consequences and I'll deal with whatever tomorrow's bring. I'll handle that because I want this so much right now. But here's the question that stops me in my tracks. What will my sin cost others? You see, David's sin didn't just cost him. David's sin cost others as well. Because of David's sin, a man named Uriah had to give up his life. And Uriah had nothing to do with David's sin, yet it cost Uriah his life. But not just Uriah, there were other soldiers who were there who died 
because David sent an order to take Uriah's life, they had to structure it in a way where other soldiers lost their lives as well. So David gained a night of passion, but families lost a dad. Families lost a husband. Families lost sons. Others paid the price for David's sin as well. Here's the question that stops me every time. What will others have to pay for my sin? What will others have to pay because I want what I want and I want it right now? Am I willing for others to have to pay that price for my decisions and my choices? Here's the truth that you see over and over in the Bible and I see over and over in life. The price of of our sin is always, always higher than the pleasure of that sin. It's always more. The cost is always more than the sin is actually worth.